Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is the second part of my interview with Chris Topo Topham, former RAF fast jet pilot and F-117 exchange officer. I spoke to Chris about the F-117 exchange for about two hours. I'd forgotten it was that long. And so this is the first hour of that interview. Uh, the second hour, I haven't listened back to actually yet. It could be complete drivel. Uh, some might say the whole thing's complete drivel. Who knows? But that will be the third and concluding part of my interview with Chris. And, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks' time. If you're on YouTube and you're watching this, please like, subscribe and share. Um, that kind of engagement drives traffic to my channel and makes YouTube see me as more successful because my content's more engaging. And even though I'm not monetizing the channel, I'd like it to be successful so you can play a role in that. Speaking of which, if you are on YouTube and you're watching this, you'll notice I've changed to a sort of picture-in-picture -picture mode where I'm less prominent and uh, Chris is more prominent. And uh, I just felt that that was probably a good thing to do so that he's the person you want to see, not me. And, you know, you can leave your comments in the uh, comment field. Let me know if it works for you. Finally, and again, for my YouTube viewers, obviously in the past, I've spent quite a bit of time finding video that I can play in the foreground that's royalty free. I've really struggled to do that for the 117. There's a lot of stuff out there, but I suspect I'd have to pay for it and I don't want to be in breach of copyright. So there's no video here. And I think that even though I know some of my viewers really like being able to watch video and listen to the expert speak at the same time, I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for me to keep finding content. Again, it's another thing for you to leave me your feedback on. Uh, obviously, if you listen to this on a podcast, then I've just wasted two minutes of your time explaining to my YouTube viewers how things work. So I apologize. Anyway, enjoy the video. So when you when you talked last time about Vegas, you, you mentioned that your first trip to Tonopah was to go and have your hand scanned. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I found really curious when I talked to Dave Southward, who was, the, you know, for anybody who hasn't watched that interview, that's the test pilot, one of the two British test pilots who went out to the States in 86, early 86, and was able to take five flights in the 117. Um, was I'd said to him, well, you know, what, what what sort of access did you have? Did they hold things back from you? And he said, no, they told them everything. So he said there were four levels of security clearance. He had the highest level, same as the squadron commander. Um, and he said if they if he wanted access to anything, they gave it to him. He just they just locked him away in the vault and, and he could have it. And one of the things that yeah. has been characteristic for me when I've interviewed RAF exchange pilots who have gone and flown with the US is, you know, the US have this uh, you know this no foreign classification, which is no foreign national, US eyes only. And they say, you know, there are various parts of the operational elements of the flying they did, um, specifically AMRAM operations or AMRAM employment, um, typically. 
that the and, and nuclear stuff that the you know the secret no fawn and they weren't given access to and so i was curious sure. to know it's a very long-winded question but i was curious to know what did they share with you what didn't they share with you um i i, I think one of the things i mentioned was that by the time we left when we left holloman there were things in our safe that only me and the base commander were able to look at um so i had that probably the same very high security clearance that they gave to dave um, so I, I had access to everything. And actually, we would have the annual get-together of exchange officers. Um, and I had to not bite my tongue, but quite one of, one of the big whinges from the guys there was it, was, it was mostly a, a great fun social thing. But there would be a bit of a, you know, a sort of coming together of minds. And the guys would say, it's really frustrating. You know, there'll, there'll be a briefing and say, sorry, you can't come along, you know. And I just didn't mention really, but but I... I never got excluded from anything at all. Literally everything was, was there for me because of the security clearance I had. And yes, you had ludicrous things like the um, magazine Recce Journal used to come in with uh, with a no form stamp on it. You know, it's, it's restricted in England and, and reading it in America, a, a British officer wouldn't be able to read it because it was stamped no fraud you know, very strange things like that was there a lot about i mean it sounds like a silly question but was there a lot about the airplane that was classified no not not really no um i mean part of the part of part of the ease of it was that there was no radar involved so um and, and no missile firing so there was never any um, issue with any of that stuff um but there were there were elements of it that were classified and uh, I, I do tell people that i'm probably not the best person to speak to now because when you're in one of these classified programs um once you're signed out from it you then never get any more updates from that day onwards you, you never hear anything else because the guys who are in there won't talk about it um and so the the amount of stuff that I am allowed to talk about is limited to what I was allowed to talk about on the day that I left, because I don't get any update. I don't get things through saying, okay, you can now talk about this, 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 and this. So the guys who are in the program much later than me can probably talk about things that I I'm, I'm still not allowed to talk about because that's the deal I signed. Really, hmm. um, it's a quite strange thing. And I've read a couple of books um, over over the last ten years or so, and there's things that I read in there. I think, wow, they're allowed to say that now, and, and yeah. That seems a bit odd, but so so what was the process of getting you ready to fly the one seventeen then? You said you went to Holloman and did your ground school there? Uh, no, we went to Holloman and flew the T thirty eight, which I think was uh, so for the, the for the A ten guys it was to get them up to speed with flying fast jets. For me, I think it was a look at me to make sure that the Brits hadn't sent them some useless git who couldn't fly. Um, and it was the most fantastic course. Um, I, I had a great instructor and uh, and loved it. Uh, in fact, uh, Jim Masley, and he ended up on the 117 so, some years later. Um, but so that was, a, a, as I recall, it was only about two weeks. It was pretty full on, probably a couple of flights a day, um, getting sent solo. Uh, and, and, it, and it was in the T-38, which is just like a Hawk. Fantastic aeroplane. Um, so I did that, and then and, and there were four of us there on the course, uh, and we then all headed up to Totopar. And 
waded into ground school. And we were doing ground school when the Gulf War kicked off. Um, there weren't very many airplanes left at Tonopah at the time. There were, there were you know, quite a few, but, but no, nowhere near as many as there would have been. Uh, and not a lot of people around because most had deployed. Um, so we just we just got on with ground school watching, fascinated what was going on on the TV, um, getting a bit more information back than was was being shown. Obviously, you know, there was there was some very heavily censored imagery being shown on CNN of, of um, attacks and things, which was um, quite clearly from the 117, but with the display just uh, um, declassified, basically. Um, and ground school, from memory, lasted perhaps four to six weeks. Um, and towards the end, we started feeding in simulator. And I think we did about 10 simulator sessions. Uh, and it was a very good simulator, not as uh, swept up as, as the ones we're using now that I use on, on the Airbus, which are like being in the real airplane. But it wasn't dissimilar. Um, and then at the end of that process, you then go off to the flying phase, which by the time I was on the airplane was being done by day um, and the first flight you do you don't even get airborne uh, so the, the 117 has the has the V tail and the drag chute um, deploys from in between the V tail um, and you have to be a little bit careful with with um, with releasing it if you don't release it it can bang against the tail and cause $50,000 worth of damage. So trip one was getting up to a, um, a suitable speed, I think maybe 120 knots, something like that, something approaching landing speed, um, and then slowing down, pulling the chute, and going clear just to make sure that you were going to be able to do that. Um, and that, that was your first trip in the airplane. Still pretty exciting, but, but that was trip one. <laughs> and then there's no two-seater version, which is very unusual for an airplane so your first trip is your first solo your first flight um because there's no two-seat trainer um by that time uh and I, I don't know how it ran before i imagine it was done because we had very good um camera footage so i imagine everything was debriefed afterwards um, but the training trips that we did were shadowed by a t-38 so there'd be a trainer in a t-38 um flying in a, a very loose formation position, just watching what's going on, answering any questions you may have, um, giving tasking, that type of thing, uh, and then debriefing it afterwards. Um, somewhat later on, I, I became a, a T-38 instructor as well, a, a trainer, and, and therefore a T-38 as well. Um, and it was that was a lovely aeroplane to fly. Ours were painted black, so they were quite unusual. And... Um, yeah, so that was and and one of the one of the um, bonuses of flying the T thirty eight as well. Um, two strange things. One of them is that if you move from one base to another, as we did moving from Tonopah to Holloman, that extends your um, exchange tour by um, six months. And if you fly another aircraft type, it does the same. So both those things extended my tour. So I did something um, over three years out there, which was uh, which was amazing. Very lucky. In terms of then learning about the aeroplane, uh, was it is it fairly straightforward? Yes, as, as aircraft go, it's fairly straightforward. I had not, I think at that stage, I'd never flown an aeroplane with autopilot. So it was quite interesting 
learning about that. And being told about the system and how it would operate and then seeing it operate for real. So one of the fairly early trips that you do was to go out into the Edwards test range and where the, uh, there were some fairly high mountains around and uh, you would fly a programmed route because we had different navigation modes, uh, one of which would just now allow you to navigate horizontally, but one of them in, in introducing VNAV would allow the aircraft to change height on a leg. So you'd get to a waypoint, it would turn towards the next waypoint, and then quite, and you can change, it would change speed as well. So um, change speed and change height. And if it was going more than, excuse me, <coughs> if it was going more than a certain uh, distance down or up, it would do it pretty dramatically and it would bump to 20 degrees nose down and head down and so one of the things was programming it in to go down to safety altitude um, which with the mountains that height would be 10 uh, 2000 feet above the highest ground around and 20 degrees nose down trust me in an airplane in the dark feels like you're going down vertically and you see the altimeter spinning around and you look at it and you think is it going to pull out is it going to is it going to pull out you know? and and of course it does uh, incredibly impressive um, so this is just to give you confidence in the system and <coughs> excuse me so the um i guess the complication with the airplane was the uh, thrust levers so on the left-hand side and two thrust levers and just covered in buttons, um, covered in buttons with various different um, jobs that they would do, most of them to do with weapon aiming, um, target acquisition, different modes of target acquisition, different, um, yeah, so different ways of, different ways of, of locking onto a target um, and getting to grips with that was one of the complications. And then the other complication was um, being able to get a good picture out of the the FLIR and the DELUR, the forward-looking infrared and the downward-looking infrared. So um, the, way a, the way a trip would go once, you, once you're um, out of the training system is that typically we'd, we'd be given 10 targets and uh, the job of producing the route came around, uh, I guess about uh, maybe once every six months or so, and you'd be tasked to produce the route for a couple of nights hence. You'd go and choose a bunch of targets, and they could be anywhere. They could be in a little small village out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it could be an airfield or a particular point on an airfield, or it could be um, house number 12 down a row of um, effectively terraced houses in the middle of downtown Albuquerque or something like that. And each different type of target has its own uh, unique problem. So with, with something like the house in the middle of a row, uh, it was very important to identify the correct target, uh, obviously. Um, but it was also quite difficult to do that because the, the, as well as getting a good picture, you'd actually have to count down to make sure you got the right target. Um, so so the person doing the, uh, the route, they had an enormous database of imagery. And typically for each target, uh, a pilot, you would, so if I'm going out to fly a route, I get given, um, I can't even remember what we called it, but it was a, a electrical box with about that size and about that deep with a handle on it, which plugged in on the right-hand side of the airplane and would upload the route into the airplane. 
Uh, if that didn't work, you could do it manually, and, and that was fine as well. But it would so it would put the whole route in, and the route would typically be an hour and a half, maybe an hour forty minutes, and it would go around these ten targets, and there'd be uh, an IP for each target, at which you could update the navigation equipment, uh, both horizontally and also vertically, because uh, it was important to have the vertical channel updated so that when you then went from the IP towards the target, uh, the cursor would be looking roughly in the right place, because if the height channel was wrong, then it could be looking five miles beyond the target. Um, so you would, you would do that update, and then you'd head in towards the target. And the you'd have three pictures. You'd have a, a sort of overview picture, and then a close uh, closer-in picture, and then a real close-up to allow you to differentiate between, for example, one terraced house uh, and the next terraced house. So one terraced house may have a uh, trampoline in the garden, or another one might have a, a you know a shed at the bottom of the garden, or something like that. And you you try and find out what the unique feature was of the of the building you were looking for. Uh, and then it, and then you'd go in and and try and find the target, and you'd then use various different uh, modes to um, to lock onto the target. And the way the aircraft worked for real was that um, you'd be committing to the target, at which point, uh, just before weapon release, a uh, laser would fire to give accurate ranging. So prior to that, you wanted the system all stabilized, and it had various ways of doing it. You'd have um, things like a uh, automatic level and gain you could have on there. So it would uh, look at temperature differential. And if you had something with shape that had temperature differential, then it could lock onto that, and you could then slew to your target. So the system would be held incredibly steady, and you would be telling the you basically telling the equipment to then be putting the weapon 150 yards up into the and to the right of the of, of where the um, where, where you'd locked onto something that was keeping the system stable uh, that, that was a fixed thing on the ground. So five seconds before weapon delivery, the laser would fire to give an accurate range, and then automatically, as part of the system, the doors would open, the weapon would deploy, um, the doors would then close. Uh, the laser would turn off, and then the weapon would do what the weapon was designed to do. Um, and the last, I think, I seem to remember the last five seconds, the, um, the illumination, the laser illumination would come back on to to accurately hit the target. But in between weapon release and that last five seconds, it was still important to track the target. Um, uh, so important that uh, if you if you drifted off the target at all, that would end up being classified as a miss. And it's a very roundabout way of saying that we'd be doing 10 targets a night and typically two or three trips uh, a week. And so in any three-month period, you may be, do, I don't know, maybe doing 30 or 40 sets of targets, maybe 250, 300 targets. Um, and if you missed two targets, you'd be out of the running for the Top Gun competition that quarter. The standard was that high. And to get to that level was a combination of familiarity with the various modes and, and uh, uh, manipulating them. And there was a there was a sort of um, almost like a mouse cursor, but just getting to grips with that with a sort of pointy head that you had to 
to move around to get the cursor to move at the right speed was took a bit of manipulation and, and, and learning and skill. Uh, getting a good picture, because some nights, if you were on the second wave, you get this thing where during the day all the temperatures go up and during the night the temperatures go down and you have a, a changeover point where everything gets quite grey and the temperature differential is, is very hard to to sort out. So there was an awful lot of um, skill involved in being able to do that. And the rest of the flying was actually pretty simple, particularly as it was now all on autopilot. Wow. So, so if I go right back to the beginning then, um, where you talk about the, the 20 degree dive to safety altitude on autopilot at night. Yeah. Um, it, you yeah. know, so, so when you talk about a stealth aircraft, one of the things that you control is the emissions coming from the airplane. Um, so that could yeah. be a light emission, heat emission, or, or, or radio emissions. Um, so did you have a rad out? How, how was the airplane able to know where it was um, and what the safety height was relative to the terrain below it? Or did it not know what the height of the terrain below was? Um, all all um, uh, navigation databases have terrain height built into them. So because the airplane knew where it was, it knew what the height of the, of the ground around was. So yes, we did have a rad out, um, but that's not what the safety altitude thing's looking at. Because actually, safety altitude is based on a, a different for different systems. Um, but for example, it, it may be based on the 30, 30 nautical mile square. So the safety altitude within that square might be 10,800 feet because the uh, there's a mountain that goes up to 8,800 feet. But it might be, 15 miles off to the left. So, so the radar wouldn't even get involved there. It, it, it's just looking at safety altitude based on the barometric height. And the, um, the that INS system, that that position keeping system, was extremely accurate. Yes, um, got upgraded. I think, I think just before I got there, we went to Ring Laser Gyros, which was a more um, so in the park, certainly in the in the Jaguar, we had big spinning gizmos that took forever to to um, wind up and were and, and used to drift quite a lot. Um, the one seventeen system was was much better than that, and um, they got using GPS data as well to update. And uh, so yeah, quite high tech. Can you explain the the difference between the the FLIR and the the DLIR, the the forward looking and the downward looking infrared? Yeah, so if you, um, I, haven't, I haven't got a model in here, I don't think, but basically just below the, um, just below the front of the, of the width of the screen. Give me a sec. Sure. Jesus. Okay, so. Oh, very nice. There we go. Just there is the fleur. Uh, it's a turret, so it has a little bit of movement left and right, and uh, a degree of movement up and down. But it's sitting there um, with back from the nose of the airplane. So you reach a certain point where it, it can't see because it's looking down through the airplane. So the delure then sits underneath, uh, near to the nose gear. 
And it's just another turret, which once again can look a little bit left and right, but shouldn't need to be looking very much left and right. Um, but basically then allows. So as you, as you approach the target, um, it's looking and showing you a picture and it gently drifts down from the floor. And then there's a fairly seamless handover to the Dilla, the downward looking infrared, which then carries on down and actually goes past the vertical so that it also tracks the impact of a weapon um, and, and then just gimbals back again. So it's a, it's um, an automated system which you're controlling to some extent um, initially until you put it into one of these various modes, the uh, different types of lock, uh, at which point it then is, is looking at whatever you've locked it to and going on down. And the INS is queuing it to your steer point or your waypoint? Uh, initially, yes. So that's why that's why you need... Well, you don't have to have an update at the IP. I mean, if it's a, if it's a town, um, you, you can see the town and, and you know, you, you'd be able to sort it out yourself. But it makes life much easier if, if you're looking in roughly the right area. Um, and as I say, that first photograph that you have is a, is a fairly wide picture of the target area. So you can, you, with uh, navigating any airplane, you always go from big to small. So you find the big things which lead you into the medium sizes, which lead you into the actual target. And certainly for some of the targets that we would have, it wouldn't just be find that building. It would be find it would be the top left hand corner of the building. And we can we can come on to talk about that because you you could. Um, Choose different type, different size warheads, depending on how much um, damage you want to do, and to minimise collateral damage, um, which, which is how you could end up with an aeroplane uh, dropping bombs in a, in a city like Baghdad hmm. nowadays. Before we talk about weapons fit, which is is, is definitely, a, um, I mean, I have a question. Uh, I was going to ask that someone else has asked me to ask you about about aim nines. Um, uh, but before we talk about that, can you describe a little bit about the the sort of man machine? Um, interface you've got a heads-up display two crts and a and a, and a, a monochrome display in, in the cockpit is that right three displays and a heads-up yes. display yeah uh d of displays yes and then you've got uh the, the the standard instruments and and the one thing to say about the 117 is that it wasn't designed by pilots it was because the ergonomics of it weren't great so um what pilots like in an airplane is, a, is an easy scan so that you can scan the various instruments and, and they're right all there in the in, in, contained in, in so you're not moving your head around on the 117 it was uh, I'm just going to have a quick look no, I'm not sure if there's a picture in here hang on just give me a sec no, this is the check this is the airplane checklist oh, okay um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have a picture of the cockpit. But basically, the the instruments um, were not. So the um, I guess the engineers who designed it designed that the most important thing about the airplane was dropping bombs, um, using the big screen in the middle to do that, and therefore they put it in the right in the middle, and the flying instruments were kind of spread out all around it. So, so you had, um, I mean, I, I've got a copy of the 117 um, flight manual, the Dash 1, um, and it talks yeah. about emitter locator system, and it says, you know, 
this it was decided not to install this. That's a text to that effect underneath it. Um, there was no radar warning receiver in the airplane, so you didn't necessarily know who was looking at you. Is that correct? Yep. So, so how would you set up your display? So you've got the one display looking, um, showing you the picture from the infrared uh, camera. Um, you've got another display with what a an HSI or something like no, that, that on it. That's a big. That's a big display. That's all it does. So, so uh, in the, in the um, the Airbus, for example, we can swap around displays if if things are breaking. Um, but on the one seventeen, that display only shows the the infrared picture from the floor into the. Okay. Um, and, and then the other the other displays, uh, you've got a navigation type display and uh, and a um, artificial horizon type display. So was that a moving map? The, the navigation display was it sort of a moving map type display? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and, and the other thing, so I guess where I'm sort of I'm curious to know is, you would typically fly at night if you were going to go into combat. It's not a it's not a daytime aeroplane, is it? You don't want to be flying around in the daytime if you can avoid it. No. And, and spatial disorientation was the cause of a couple of mishaps that they'd had when the airplane was still flying only at night. Uh, I just wondered then whether or not the the cockpit sort of um, facilitated you being heads down, looking at all these things uh, while the airplane flew itself, which I guess might contribute to spatial disorientation, or um, you know, whether or not you had to keep looking up into the heads-up display, or if, or if spatial D was something you experienced or was prevalent for you. I think the accidents they had early on, and and I. I'm no expert and I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that it was a couple of guys doing things that were outside the, not necessarily the flight envelope, but doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, in other words, that when we're at, at nighttime, we did it on automatic pilot. Uh, so the airplane was limited to 50 degrees of bank. Um, so it would never get anywhere near 2G even. Um, so, uh, and, and the rates of turn were uh, rates of roll were faster than we get in airliners, a lot faster than we get in airliners, but nothing disorientating. So I never felt, I, I truly never felt disorientated in the airplane. I was very aware that there were quite long periods where I wasn't looking at the instrumentation, but that's because um, after each waypoint, you would check that it was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Um, and once you'd done that, you could then concentrate on the task. And that's the idea of an autopilot, is to take that flying load off the uh, off the pilot. And certainly in that airplane, and as I said, you know, we're doing 10 targets in, in a, on, on a trip in the evening. That's a lot of, a lot of work. Um, and so they're not that far apart because it's only an hour and a half, hour 40 flight. So, um, so the autopilot was, was very well, uh, very well capable of doing the job. And although the cockpit inside wasn't ideal for um, for instrument flying, you wouldn't need to instrument fly because the combination of the autopilot and the head-up display did what you needed it to do, basically. You mentioned um, hour and a half, hour and 40 sorties. Um, it had an air-to-air refueling capability. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we, we did that quite a lot. <laughs> one, of the fun- <laughs> one of the funniest things that happened... I mean, there were a lot of funny things happened, but uh, one of the great things about the United States Air Force is they try to involve families when they can. And uh, about a year after we got down to Holloman, 
um, there was a message came around that, that the uh, air-to-air refuelers from Beale, Air Force Base, were going to come down and were going to operate with the squadron. So come base themselves at Holloman for a week and do some air-to-air refuel, and we'd go and hit them. Um, sort of target slightly further away, ranges further away than we would normally use. Um, because air to air fueling is something you need to practice. Um, and just just jumping back a bit, the way that air to air fueling in that airplane worked was, was amazing, really. Um, you would practice for real. So there would be nothing being emitted. Um, you would uh, You would basically agree to be, for example, over a TACAM beacon at a certain time. And the tanker would agree to be there. That was the contract you had. And you would rock up there and, and he would be there. And as you were coming in, you could use, you could use the fleur to see him, actually, and, and um, go up there. So this particular evening out of Holloman, um, so, so the, the message went out that any other family wanted to come. These are KC-10s, where there are a whole bunch of seats in there. Um, <clears throat> and any of any families who want to come could uh, could come and, and do it and, to some extent watch the airplanes doing their thing so my wife said she'd love to go and do that uh, so she went along with everybody else and we went and briefed for the mission and i was uh, leading a two-ship uh, so we were going to go up to the tanker together uh, i would let my wingman refuel i'd then refuel and then we'd go off and, and hit a target so we got weapons and uh, we'd gone off with not quite full of fuel because we could then fill up from the tanker and uh, heads up everything was going well we got to the tanker uh, with time to spare uh, I sent my wingman in he got his fuel I then went up got my fuel and with the um, American system when you're plugged into the boom and, and it's a it's a very simple system compared to the RAF system so in the RAF you have the drogue chutes which hang down um, so they have a they have a, a parachute holding them relatively stable in the airflow but certainly in a jaguar as you drive up towards it the airflow around the aircraft makes the drogue chute move a bit so it's a it's a real it's a real learning curve working out how to refuel a jaguar um because also the the um refueling probe comes out on the right hand side and it's outside your fit just not like my arm is it's outside your field of view so you just have to kind of know roughly where it is and it's quite a big old drogue i'm, I'm guessing it's about that big but still it's it's a bit trick whereas in the air force in the uh, united states air force you drive up and underneath the airplane there's a system of lights traffic lights red amber and uh, and uh, green and a, a box that you drive up into and, and lining up things so you put yourself in the right place and then the boom operator has a, a fully drivable boom and they literally plug into you and once you're plugged in, there's about, I, I can't remember how much it is, there's about a one, maybe one ton force or maybe two ton force that uh, mechanically holds you in place. So you don't have to be particularly accurate with the throttles. You, you, it, it kind of holds you there. So it's, it's actually, it's very much easier than the Air Force system. Um, so this particular thing, so my wingman's gone away. So I then drive up, we connect and you've then got radio, um, intercom with the airplane because that's all part of the the system so the boom operator comes on as a lady and she said uh, hello is that uh, is that major tarpan and i said uh, yeah it is hi and she said uh, yes uh, major would you like to speak to your wife and i said yeah that'd be great said, yeah she's right here just a second so i'm there and and i've looked at my watch and, and time's okay but you know my wingman had plenty of time but you know it's, it's, 
a bit of time left. And uh, so I'm sitting there seeing, seeing the fuel and and, and, the lights. and then suddenly this big, the whole cockpit goes red, this big red light that I've never seen before. And it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the automatic disconnect light. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what's happening here? And I look and I haven't got nearly enough fuel. So I drive myself back into the right place again. And now the airplane is somewhat heavier, so it takes a little bit longer. So I get back in place, the boom operator connects up again, and uh, fuel starts flowing, and the big green light comes on. And I said, hi, what happened? He said, uh, oh, it's your wife, sir. She pressed the wrong button. <laughs> she, she pressed the disconnect button instead of the talk button. <laughs> so, yeah, it made, uh, made things a bit tense. Anyway, uh, Preston uh, and, and we all went well. But yes, we would do that. And uh, of course, when I brought the airplane to Milton Hall, I think there were about nine air-to-air refueling brackets on the way over the Atlantic. It's, uh, um, because you you had to have enough fuel that you could divert to anywhere you need to go if anything happened. So, what were the arrangements for diverts then? If if, if you're if you have to land at a civilian air, airport, <coughs> um, it's a you know. The, the, the materials it's made out of, you know, are classified. You don't want people walking up, pulling bits off of it. What would you what would you have done? Uh, I mean, it happened it happened a couple of times. It happened, happened once. Uh, well, it was in the papers, so I guess I can say. So we uh, we were doing an air show down at uh, um, El Paso, uh, Fort Bragg, I think, which is next to El Paso International. And I'd been uh, I'd done all the preparation to go and do this as an air show and uh, about middle of the week prior to going and doing it so the Wednesday that we were doing air show on the Friday it was a Friday Saturday Sunday um, gentleman who shall remain nameless uh, came up to me the lieutenant colonel and, and said uh, Topo do you mind if I uh, if I fly the black jet down uh, and you can take the T-38 and I said uh, no that's fine boss if, you know, if that's what you want to do um, that's fine. I'll fly the T thirty eight down. I'll I'll go ahead. I said, but I've got uh, there's a whole route planned and all the information about that. He said, no. I'm, uh, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm I'm from El Paso, so I, I you know I know it all really well. It's fine. So it's fine. I said, okay. Well, you know, it's all there. So I gave it to him. I headed off um, Friday morning. Uh, and I go down, and then there's a support airplane goes down with all the ground crew guys. And we fly down there. We land. Really nice bunch of people. Make us very welcome. So, uh, you know and um, I said, well, you know, I, I, I'd love to go up in the tower and watch um, watch the airplane ride. Oh, yeah, you can do that. So we go up in the tower, and I hear it coming in, and we see it on the radar, and because he's got the um, radar cross-section enhancer boxes on, on top of the airplane. So we see it coming in, and, he's, and of course, he's transponding as well. Uh, because you, you always get this, um, oh, yeah, no, we can, it's, not that, it's not that invisible. We can see it, and yeah, you can. Um, he comes in, and... Uh, he goes downwind at El Paso International. And I'm thinking, oh, he's, he comes from here. He's just going to show off and do a couple of low passes. So he does indeed, comes around, does a low pass. It's fine. And then uh, goes back around again. And, and I think, hang on, that's... And I suddenly had this awful realisation. I thought, does he realise that he's he's actually coming here to Fort Bragg, not to El Paso International? Maybe so. So I see him turn downwind again, and I said to the guy in the tower, "Can you speak to those guys?" He says, "Yeah, we've got a we've got a hotline, the red phone." I said, "Well, can you just ask them to tell him that he's not landing at El Paso International?" So the guy picks it up. He goes, "It's engaged," <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 
I've, I've watched in horror. It's not that far. It's like maybe five, six miles away. You can see it clear as anything. And he just went in and landed. And once he's landed and pulled the chute, that's it. He's not going anywhere. So, oh, God, stop <laughs> running down the stairs. <laughs> we get the ground crew. And they head off to go and get it. So one of the things that this guy, he's a lovely bloke, one of the things this guy said to me was, uh, um, I said, look, there's a load of press and stuff. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with all that because I said, I'm a local boy. I said, that's fine. I'll just go, you know. I'll keep out of the way. So he eventually comes over about two hours later. They they obviously patch a new chute, put a bit of fuel in, and, and he comes over and then I go and meet him at the airplane. I said, oh, he goes, oh, yeah, that's good. He said, uh, so are you going to come and do the press conference? I said, no, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, so I can't remember what the headline was, but in the El Paso Times, it was something like, um, you know, high-tech stealth fighter pilot can't find Fort Bragg airfield or something like that just uh yeah very embarrassing uh what would what, what would what would you expect do you just have to ask people to keep away we didn't have guns with us or anything like that so you'd just have to tell and i i never heard of anybody doing so because people are aware of things like that and how much trouble they could get into if they did come up and mess with it so that's fine but certainly when we went and did air shows there'd be a cordon around the airplane and I'd have guys with me and they would have loaded guns. They just would uh, at an air show. Um, you know, once again, never got used, but yeah, very tricky. You mentioned the, the radar um, enhancers and I suppose it's remiss of me not to have asked you as a starting point to describe what made the airplane stealthy. Uh you you kind of alluded to it. So there are a whole load of different ways that that it was made stealthy, and part of it was the emissions. We had the what called the platypus on the on the rear trailing edge of the wings, which diffused the exhaust. So we had the same engines as uh, as an F eighteen, but with no afterburner because of the shape of the platypus, basically, and because we, you didn't need that extra thrust. Um, and also, um, the platypus itself would, would cause a reduction. So where the uh, F-18, uh, I, I can't remember the numbers, but we basically, I think, had 18,000 pounds of thrust maybe in total, where the F-18 had at least twice as much from, from the same engines with afterburn. Um, because we didn't need the excess power because basically we were, you know, we were to all intents and purposes invisible. So there was, there was, there was that, the, um, the emissions. Uh, there were different types of um, material on the airplane. Some with anti-magnetic properties. Some with uh, radar, uh, anti-radar properties, um, in different parts of the airplane. And certainly for for real, um, if you went and did a walk around of the airplane and you found an area that was even the size of uh, a dime, where some of the um, some of the material was missing you'd reject the airplane and it would they'd have uh, stuff that we call putty that they, they could put in to repair it. Um, but it was it was taken as seriously as that. So there are a whole whole host of different ways that the emissions were uh, but then also when you got to a threat area, you would uh, draw in all the antennas. So you were then radio silent and uh, out of contact until you until you put the antennas out again. And no emissions apart from those short bursts of, uh, of laser energy for a weapon. Did you have any um, system in the airplane to remind you to do that? So if you got to a particular waypoint, 
would it, would it, would anything come up and say, hey, you know, go MCon or whatever, you know, the terminology is for that, or would you just have to remember to do it? I think instinct of self-preservation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let, can we talk about that a little bit then? Um, you know, the the idea behind stealth is that it's not that you're invisible. It's you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's that you are um, invisible enough that by the time they see you, it's too late. You know, they, they you've already put the bomb on the target, or um, you know that you, you you've been discovered too late for them really to do anything about your presence. Is that correct? It may be the case with with improvements to radar. Certainly, um, certainly in the in the air to air game, the whole point of stealth technology is that you get to see the other guy before he sees you, and therefore you fire your missile first, and, and therefore you win. Um, and, and that I think is how air combat has has gone. Um, there's various countermeasures, but that's that's the gist of it, and that's the whole point of stealth technology. There, for us. It was a combination of the airplane being very, very hard to spot. Um, but then the tactics we used. So uh, when you were in a threat area, you would change height and speed and heading on every leg. Um, and that way, so it was only the um, ultra long wave radars that had a chance of seeing you. But those are the ones that had very slow scans. So by the time it came round for another scan, you would have changed height or speed or heading, so you wouldn't be trackable. Uh, and that, so those two things together, the the um, well, three things, I guess, flying it at night and it's a black aeroplane, um, the 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 aircraft itself, and then the tactics that we employed, and then finally, no one, and I'm I'm still not allowed to talk about, well, as far as I know, about the sort of heights we used to operate at. But one of the things that people don't uh, necessarily know is that anti-aircraft fire is um, it's set to detonate and it's set to detonate at a certain height. It's got a barometric fuse in it. Um, and if you don't know what height airplanes are operating at, you don't know what height to be setting these things off at. So I think I'm right in, in saying that there was not any damage to any of our airplanes throughout the Gulf War, even though they were flying across central Baghdad. With you know, I think people saw on CNN that insane amount of anti-aircraft fire, um, but never took any damage because they had no idea what heights we were operating. Is there a mission planning software that does the the legwork for you in terms of calculating, um, you know, the optimum approach given a range of different service to a missile systems or, or threat radars that you're going to have to fly through or past? Yeah. Um, um, not no, not so much a system. Um, we had a, an amazing team of, of flight planners. So, just going back to when I was saying that you would get tasked to to do a route, as the person doing the route, you would choose the targets. Um, you'd plot the route, or you'd plot the route that you wanted to fly, and then you'd give the whole thing to the to the planners. They would come up with the target imagery. They would come up with the photos that were showing it all from the right direction. And this was then practicing for, as they had to, for for a, a real threat and for wartime as well. So they, those guys are amazing. Um, the, the flight planners, they would produce pack upon pack of, of, of these amazingly detailed um, stuff that, that took all of that stuff into account. So, yes, it was all covered and it was all done with real-time information. So in, in the training environment then, how did you assess the effectiveness with which you had um, 
penetrated the imaginary enemy's airspace. I mean, you've, so you've talked about how you would assess whether or not you found the target and you stuck with the target and the bomb would have impacted the target. How would you have assessed yep. your, your, the stealthiness with which you flew the mission? Uh, it wasn't, you couldn't, you can't fly a mission in peacetime the same way you would in wartime other than except when you're in the test ranges doing uh, that stuff because you can't do the changing height speed and heading because we were operating in, in normal airspace so you would have to so those those routes had to be given to the air traffic controllers um so that so that we were predictable um so you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to use vnav uh, in uh, anywhere other than in a test range or, or, or for real, so it wasn't a real thing. So the you, you couldn't assess that. You 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 just had to do it when it on on the day. It's not really an assessable thing. Yeah, I, I suppose that um, was sort of what I was wondering because I, the interviews I've, I've seen historically, it's been a while since I watched them with some of the the, the first pilots to go to Baghdad on 17th of January 91 you know they, they talk mm. about being amazed that it worked that the the system worked I mean I, I guess they never yeah. you know um, and you talked about self-preservation making sure you didn't forget to you know, whip in all your antennas and honestly stuff. those guys truthfully those guys on on day one of the war um they're the bravest pilots I know I mean they are going over a place that lights up with anti-aircraft fire trusting that the aircraft, the, the, the stealth technology is going to work. No one's fired at them before, you know, just incredible. And um, they had a, a, a fantastic success rate uh, of, of, you know, weapons delivered uh, in the correct place. Yeah. So what was the weapons fit for the airplane when, when you were on it? We um, primarily would use the, the, uh, the, the best weapon we have is GBU-27 which was uh, um, uh, proportional laser guidance. Um, and it was, it was an amazing weapon, actually. So you carry two of them. They weighed 2,000 pounds each. And um, rather than just being a, a, a slick bomb, which would just drop and gradually bunt, sorry, drop and then gradually bunt down as you went down, the GBU-27 was designed to be dropped somewhat later so there would be a point at which you would drop a, a, a slick bomb, which is then going to carry on flying at the same speed the airplane is and, and is going to go down and hit the ground. Uh, the GBU-27, you would get somewhat closer to the target. Um, and when it dropped, its first thing was it would bump down to about, <laughs> excuse me, I think about 70 degrees nose down. And it would then just accelerate under the force of gravity. Um, so you got closer because it was going to be traveling faster and steeper. Um, and it would impact at, at above the speed of sound. And the weird thing about it, because the, the, the second bomb was released even steep, would go even steeper, uh, the second bomb would impact before the first bomb because it was steeper and traveling faster and had less distance to travel. So very odd. But they were amazing weapons. And uh, we, would, we would drop them uh, on ranges. And I remember doing one with some mensurated um, gadgets in it to work it out and dropping into solid desert rock and the first I, I can't even remember the numbers but the first bomb went something like 15 feet into it the second bomb went into exactly the same hole and then dug you know maybe another 15 feet down into that 
it was uh, an amazing system. Is it um, is it the case then that the sort of target you would be going after would be buried or, or heavily uh, sort of armoured or, or or sort of you know bunker type targets that, that sort of thing? Yeah, that was that proved to be quite a problem. But actually, um, bear in mind, I I didn't do the Gulf War. I, I watched it from afar because I was doing training while it happened. But um, I, I've seen a lot of the footage and obviously chatted to a lot of the guys. <coughs> so one of the issues was that the airplane was so successful that after um, a few days of the war, they were sort of running out of targets. And the way that battle damage assessment historically had been done was that they would have satellites going over looking at um, the, the targets that had been hit to assess the damage. And guys were then getting going in for their mission for the for the evening, um, going into a, you know, a, a war zone in an expensive airplane, but saying, hang on a minute, I, I took this target out five days ago, or I know that he took this target out three days ago. It, we, we've already destroyed it. Because, uh, as I said, the Delure carries on looking down, so you see the impact. And on some of the footage, for example, uh, a hardened aircraft shelter, um, you see the weapon impact, and then you see the doors blow off. And, uh, you know, so you, you can see it. Uh, so they then send a message back or, or phone up to say, look, we've already taken out this target. And Central Command come back and say, well, we, we can't prove that. And they go, well, we can't. We, we've got the footage here. They say, well, you know, Andre, yeah, we can see a bit of a smudge on the top of the has, but that's it. So, well, that's, that's the hole that, that the bomb or bombs went through. You know, they say, well, we can't prove it. So you're going to have to go back again. And one of the things that impressed me about the way the Americans dealt with the Gulf War was that in the um, in the post-war assessment, that uh, and I think it happened a little bit later, maybe it even happened a little bit later on in, in the, the war itself, was they recognised that because we had the ability to assess stuff pretty much in real time once the airplanes got back, they they devolved that battle damage assessment down to squadron level, so the squadron could report back and say, okay, we have destroyed this target. Uh, which hadn't been done before, uh, and that was that was a, a very good thing. So yes, um, you you would go against hardened shelters, and the, the GBU twenty seven would take them out. It was it was an incredible weapon. No uh, real time targeting capability then in in the dynamic sense. Um, so is it is it was it possible that someone would say go after you know this guy and his you know, in his motorcade, and you you might find him here, and then you could target them dynamically if you wanted to at that point. Uh, no, because you've sucked in all your antennas, so so they're not going to be able to update you with, with anything. So no. There was a lot of there was talk about. So one of the things that um, uh, one of the things that they that the Iraqis were reputed to be doing uh, because they were they were getting smashed. Uh, Basically, so one of the things they were talking about doing was putting their aircraft next to um, historic artifacts and and um, statues and, and, and things of value, in the hope that that would um, mean that they weren't going to be attacked. And there was discussion. I don't think it ever came to it, but there was discussion about because they realised that the aircraft was so accurate that they would drop 
bombs with no warhead in and just put the bomb through the cockpit of the airplane and and destroy the airplane that way with that and because with that that weapon you could choose the size of a warhead so um, baghdad had military installations spread all over the city um in the in the what they thought was certain knowledge that there would be no appetite for carpet bombing a city in this day and age um, because you know because of civilian casualties and what they hadn't reckoned with was a, was a weapon system so accurate uh, that you could you could choose a size of, of warhead you could take out the corner of a building and leave everything else intact and do minimal collateral damage um, and just taking out those military installations so so in many ways it, it was an amazing system the question that I was asked to ask you was whether or not you, you had heard of any uh, testing or any plans afoot to to put the aim nine onto the f117 uh, as far as I know it would carry the aim nine but there'd be no point because you wouldn't really be able to do anything with it so the, the uh, there was no external um, pylon to put it on so it would it would fit onto the mountings inside the airplane but it wouldn't be of any practical use do, do you think uh, uh, that's my understanding this is this is this is just you know crazy theoretical territory but do you think it would have made a good um, interceptor um, for a high profile or a high value asset um, you know sort of a, a leader flying on an airliner or something like that you know you, you would uh, cold war scenario type thing would it have worked for that to to launch missiles. Yeah, yeah. Say, hey, this this guy's going to be on his airliner, go and shoot it down. I mean, is that a? Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm. This is completely, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't designed to do that. Certainly, uh, you know, a, a stealthy airplane is a good thing to go and do that with. Um, but they've got plenty of different ones to do that with now. But no, the the one seventeen wasn't wasn't ever designed to do that. Uh, could you have done it? I don't know, really. Uh, I don't know what. I, I've never fired name line. Uh, I've, I've, you know, flown airplanes that haven't but never fired one. But I don't know what the mechanism would be for. You wouldn't know that it was tracking a target, so you just have to sort of, I guess, let it loose and let it do its thing. It would be just as likely from that range to take you out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, and, and there'd be, you know, there'd be all sorts of weird aerodynamic considerations as well with big old bomb bay doors and the way that the airflow it's a big difference between a two thousand pound bomb coming out and a, and a whatever an aim nine weighs not very much okay. so you're not a fan of the idea but no, okay. i think i think i think dangerous <laughs> okay. so, so so back to the real world then um did did you did, i mean it's a solitary mission you 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 go out and switch everything off, go and hit the target you've been assigned to. Did you ever work with any reconnaissance platforms to try and get maybe an update? You know, just prior to you turning off your sensors, was there any kind of um, effort to to make the mission itself a bit more dynamic or a bit more, let's say, responsive to the changes in events? You know, prior to you going silent. Not that I not that I know of. Um, the, I mean, you you could. Theoretically, you could program a, a target in at short notice. I'm just racking my brains to think. With generally, the, the targets that needed taking out were, you know, things like bridges and hardened aircraft shelters, and 
you've got an airplane to do that. You had other airplanes that could go and do those types of jobs um, just you know, just as well. So no, I don't think that was that was ever considered. So, so uh, I mean, you you could punch an extra target into the the navigation system, but you wouldn't have any imagery. It, it just wouldn't make any sense. I, I don't think. From your point of view, then, as somebody who's done some pretty exciting flying um, with the Royal Air Force prior to arriving on your exchange tour, um, is this a completely different change of pace? Uh, how, how demanding, um, how satisfying is is this this type of flying? Oh, it was it was incredibly satisfying. Um, the, the the Jaguar was a wonderful airplane, um, and the and the task was amazingly hard work i hadn't realized till i became an airline pilot and put on two stone instantly um that being a fighter pilot actually kept me pretty fit because it was just that type of thing the 117 was um a, a bit more a bit more sort of cerebral the, you were using different skills um still making times on target and that type of thing but the, the just the sheer the, the number of targets that you were doing in in, in practice um, it was a different type of skill and certainly in the in the jaguar although you know we mentioned i was a recce pilot that was that was only a small part of the job in the jaguar but a lot of it was formation flying and and big tactical formations um so it's so a, a totally different type of flying but in its way very satisfying um you you get a real sense of achievement coming back from from a one seventeen mission a training mission, having hit all ten targets. It was uh, you know that was that was the job you were out there to do, and some of them were really pretty demanding, um, and you, certainly it, it prepared you very well for, for should that come up as an eventuality. <laughs> 